A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I feel like I've wasted the last few years. I've wasted my whole life, and I've achieved nothing. To the world around him, by the winter of 2002, 51-year-old Anthony John Hardy was little more than a sexually defunct diabetic with bipolar disorder. He eked out a living on a disability allowance. He had been bounced from hostels to hospitals to prisons. He was dependent on a cocktail of medications, drink and drugs. And the only relationships he maintained was with a series of anonymous sex workers. As a clinically depressed alcoholic, at best, his life would be an endless circle of therapy sessions, drug tests and relapses. At worst, he would sink into a pit of depression, arrests and homelessness. He was a nameless nobody who had achieved nothing. Only deep down in his sadistic little soul, Tony harbored a dark ambition. Feeling a supreme sense of superiority over the system he had manipulated and the experts he had duped. Having murdered his first victim, he had evaded justice and a lengthy prison sentence, receiving only a few months in hospital with his second lying dead in a spare room. His evil obsession was just days away from completion. And seeking a third victim, soon he would be as infamous as his hero. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, as his memory and details were deliberately vague and his many illnesses masked the sadistic truth. He was a different person to different people at different times, for a very specific reason. And only by viewing his story from his perspective is it possible to see the four sides of the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part 3. Tony the Sadist. The last five years, I could have spent it in a job or training at college. Instead, I spent it drinking tea in day centres and alcohol on the streets. The therapy, the alcohol sessions and the counselling has helped. 
but with no fixed address, it's impossible to achieve any real goals. Tuesday the 24th of December 2002, Christmas Eve. Not a flake of snow fell on the soggy, litter-strewn streets of Camden. Instead, a cold, wet drizzle wafted the cheesy chirp of festive hits as it drifted on the breeze. From the window of his brightly coloured living room, the big-bearded figure of Tony stared out onto Royal College Street. Like a demented Santa Claus in a Hawaiian shirt, and a set of Mr. Men's socks. With his tree up, his baubles dangling, and his Christmas cards hanging on a string, there was a real sense of excitement. For everyone, it was about Christmas. But for Tony, it was about infamy. Chosen by Camden Council, simply because it was available and suited a single man, it's ironic that the flat that they chose at Fort Heartland would be so perfect for the sickening whims of a prospective serial killer. From outside, being situated on the ground floor of a council block, Flat 4 had no immediate neighbours. Fully surrounded by a street, two stairwells and a passageway, it sat by itself, with a few frosted windows in the communal areas a thick front door facing no others, and the four windows to his living room, bathroom and spare room were all set six feet off the ground. On the ground floor was a thin grey stairwell, illuminated by a single bulb which infrequently worked, and as it led to nowhere but other flats, unless you lived there, you had no reason to be there. As the only entrance or exit, opening the black front door, which had no glass pane, just a spy hole and a clumsily chalked four. Should anyone peep inside, they would see nothing but a thin, vague hallway. There were no carpets or furniture, just a few childish daubings and the flat fronts of four closed doors. To the left was a white windowless bathroom with a bath, a sink and a toilet. And nothing else but a nail brush, a mop, the name Sara in red paint, and two self-shot snaps of semi-clad ladies sunning it up in the park. Second right was a small messy kitchen, with a fridge, an electric hob, and some unwashed plates, which, like all the other rooms, resembled the flat of a depressed alcoholic. So should the council inspect it, to the uninitiated, it needed a good clean and a paint job but there would be nothing of concern to report. In the brightly coloured living room, besides the cheap Christmas tree and the string of greetings cards, you'd see a stack of books on Jack the Ripper, not an odd fixation with death. You'd see three tellies, not a shrine to hardcore porn, a line of blank VHS tapes, not hours of simulated and real rapes, and an assortment of sticky spillages from a clumsy alcoholic, and not the mopped-up bloodstains of his last victim. Perhaps, having rejected his generous offer of a spare room, with sex as payment for the rent. Of course, the spare room was a perfect trap to lure in any vulnerable female lodger, as it was warm, dry, 
and almost free. With a double bed, a locked door, and a single window which opened a few inches, although silenced by brick walls on all four sides, the neighbors were used to the sounds of seedy sex coming from this room. And besides, the lodger wouldn't be left alone, as Tony had a spare key. Only now, that offer wouldn't be on the table, as although he had masked the ominous stench of putrid decay with an endless supply of incense, and her grey tracksuit bottoms blocked the base of the door, Liz's body remained. Five days dead and slowly decomposing, she was his to do with as he pleased. A passive woman who would never say no, would never flee, and would never mock his unruly erections. On the surface, this was not a home of a crazed psychopath. This was just a stepping stone for one of the council's most in-need residents. Oddly, although it was filled with art, the walls featured not a single image of nudity, sex, bondage or death. There was no cruelty, no blood and nothing unnerving. But under the childish veneer of fishes, rainbows and smiling faces, everything he painted was born out of a deeply personal frustration or a dark sadistic secret. Some were spiritual or religious symbols, such as moons, stars and Celtic crosses. Some were aspirational, such as a doodle of a waving Tony, cooing, hey little lady. Many were names, like Sarah, Sandra, Jane or Tracy, whereas others were only initials. But many were specific, as besides his bank of tellies was a painting of a lady's face, her nose replaced with a capital A, a single red tear pouring down her eye, and her look was unmistakably Sally. The flat was not only his home, it was a perfect place to undertake his sadistic crimes in absolute privacy. But should it be taken away and he be forced back into hostels, his dream of infamy would collapse. Released on the 14th of November 2002, Tony played the part of a typical, if flawed, outpatient perfectly. He attended his therapy sessions, but missed a few, as many alcoholics do. He was an active and well-behaved participant at the Diorama Art Group, and as requested, he enrolled in a photography and IT course at the Milton Skills Center, with his plan to get himself a regular job. Or so he would say. Barely a month before Sally's death, Tony had taken the precautionary step to ensure that no one would unearth his dark ambition. In an unusual step, he requested that his weekly meetings with his care coordinator occur in a cafe around the corner, rather than in his flat. And given that she was female and he had a history of violent sexual assaults, it seemed a sensible measure for her safety. As seen during his sectioning, his sadism could bubble to the surface at any point without warning. In 1992, Tony was once again evicted from the Arlington House Hostel in Camden. Only then, 
It wasn't for his drunkenness, but for a particularly savage trick he had a cruel fondness for, which earned him the eerie nickname of the Bone Crusher. Creeping up behind a resident, he would trap them in a bear hug and squeeze them tight until they passed out, causing bruising, fractures, and asphyxiation. Even back then, it was said that he got a kick out of stopping someone breathing. Tony's sexual sadism stemmed back to the 1970s with his increased need for sex workers. The more he used, the less his addiction was satisfied and the rougher the sex he craved, all of which led to strangulation, manipulation and the full physical and psychological control of another human being. Wary of his sadistic desires, many girls refused to see him again no matter how desperate they were but many would later state that he would brag, you mark my words, one day I'm gonna be famous. So it seemed strange that, although he was a highly volatile man prone to manic episodes, whose whole plan was almost scuppered owing to a leaky tap, that he had told no one his plan. The nearest anyone got to the truth was in the casual chats in the cafe with his old pal Maureen Reeves. Friends for 10 years, there was no love or longing between them. They were just two like-minded people who enjoyed each other's company and regularly chatted over a cup of tea. To Maureen, Tony was charming and smart with no hint of anger or violence. If anything, he was a gentleman with a big heart and a kind soul. But with no knowledge of his past, she was unaware that, being comfortable in her presence, he was unwittingly laying out his plan before her. Being obsessed with the East End serial killer Jack the Ripper, Tony could talk for hours about Jack, about his skills, his methods, his motives, his infamy and his legend. To some, that hobby may seem a bit odd, but everybody has a pastime, and many have an obsession with true crime. And besides, it distracted him from drinking and getting depressed. Only Tony's plan wasn't without its mistakes, and the biggest wasn't the body in his room, but his neighbour upstairs. On the night that Sally's corpse was discovered in his spare room, sweating and shaking, Tony's arrest wasn't the real reason for his nervousness, but that his plan had stalled before it had even begun. In a moment of uncontrolled mania, in which previously he had slashed his neighbor's tires, bent her wipers and posted her an abusive note, having attacked her door with spray paint and acid, a key issue concerning his discharge from hospital was the risk that Tony posed to his neighbour and the other residents at Heartland. On the 4th of July 2002, as an inpatient at the Cardigan Ward, Tony received a notice of possession informing him of his imminent eviction. Incarcerated and helpless, his model behaviour was not only vital to get himself discharged, but also to rally the doctors in his fight to save his flat.
When asked, Tony would state, I feel like I've wasted the last few years. Don't get me wrong, the therapy has helped. But with no fixed address, it's impossible to achieve any real goals. To allay their fears, he said of his neighbor, I've no ill feelings towards her. It wasn't her, it was the drink. With the eviction delayed, the doctors stood up for their patient, rightfully declaring, Mr. Hardy's accommodation has caused great concern. There is nothing at present to convince us that detention in a hospital continues to be necessary. He has a natural human right to be treated in the surroundings which encourage and support his own efforts. With his eviction court in a legal dispute, on the 14th of November 2002, Tony returned to his home at Fort Hartland. It was a perfect little flat for a prospective serial killer. But his future there was uncertain. Whether the threat of homelessness ignited a fire in his belly is unknown. Whether his hospitalization caused his bottled up urges to burst is uncertain. Or whether his urgency was owing to a sixth sense of unfinished business, a macabre little anniversary, or as a Christmas gift to himself, no one will ever know. But two innocent women would die in the space of a week, with his third of particular significance. On the 6th of December 2002, from a stall in Camden Market, Tony purchased a set of Mr. Men's socks featuring the grinning yellow face of Mr. Happy. Either this was Christmas shopping, or it was premeditation. On the 14th of December at 6.34pm, in the Sainsbury's on Camden Road, he bought a large black roll of heavy-duty bin bags, the kind used for house clearances or gardening. Only Tony wasn't moving out, and he didn't have a garden. On the 18th of December, he severed his ties with the Alcohol Advisory Service by writing them a Christmas card in which he scrawled, I don't need you anymore. Thanks for all your help. And on the 19th of December, at an unspecified time by King's Cross Station, he met Elizabeth Selina Vallad. Bludgeoned, strangled, posed and photographed, as no one had seen, heard, or reported her missing, her murder was as perfect as possible. Being on his best behavior, there was less chance of the police disturbing his sadistic crimes, and having cunningly evaded a lengthy custodial sentence, Tony was back exactly where he had been 11 months earlier. In the same room, on the same bed, with the same plan. Only this time, unlike with Sally, Liz was his to do with as he pleased, for as long as he pleased. On Friday the 20th of December, the next day, sensing a moment of mania rising inside him, and as before, fearing it could all be ruined by an angry outburst, over something as trivial as a leaky tap, Tony went to church. 
telling the rector that he was at an emotional rock bottom. The cleric prayed for his immortal soul and noticed, but never questioned, that around his neck, Tony hung a key to a locked room in his flat. Later, he returned to the cardigan ward to collect his medication. The mania passed, and as he walked among the Christmas shoppers, he headed home to his tree, his cards, and his corpse. All the while, mulling over who would be next. But then it didn't matter who she was. What was significant was her number. Bridget Cathy McClellan was born on the 31st of August 1968 as the youngest of five children to Roderick, a civil servant, and their mother, a housewife. Born in the tranquil peace of New Zealand, age five, the family uprooted to the smoggy rain-sodden streets of London. Bridget was a flame-haired, pale-skinned and cheeky-faced young girl who loved to laugh and loved to dance. And being a real beacon of brightness and warmth, she illuminated even the gloomiest of rooms. Only just like her lovely smile, it masked a short life which would be tinged with struggles and sadness. Barely out of her teens, she met a man, she fell in love, and together they gave birth to a little baby boy. But with deep frictions in their box-fresh relationship, it fell apart, and the father left. In 1992, aged 24, she met a Moroccan painter and decorator called Salil Abdel Amzil. One year later, they married. Two years later, another baby boy was born. But by 1998, the marriage had collapsed and Salil had moved out. Gripped with depression and living on benefits with two boys to raise alone, Bridget struggled. To lift her mood, she was prescribed antidepressants. But when they failed, illicit drugs followed. For a while, she was coping, with friends describing her as lovely, great fun, and a really good mum. But infrequent drug use quickly consumed her life, and being addicted to crack, she sold sex to feed her habit. By the winter of 2002, being evicted from her fifth-floor council flat in Camden, hopelessly addicted to crack, and with convictions as a King's Cross sex worker, she had no home, no life, and her two little boys had been taken into care. The bright, bubbly Bridget had gone, and in her place stood a gaunt yellow shell, all rough and ragged, like a faint ghost with a painted-on smile. On the night of Tuesday the 24th of December 2002, as the world wrapped their presents, Bridget was seen by King's Cross Station. It was Christmas Eve. But to this sullen, shivering lady, who was 34 but looked nearer 50, it was just another night in need of a fix. With another sex-obsessed stranger, another squalid flat, another 30 quid for an uncomfortable fuck on a grimy bed, 
and in another doorway, she would cook up those caustic little rocks to forget her sadness and dull her pain. But only for a short while. How they met is unknown. But just like the others, no one saw or heard her as she entered Fort Heartland. Inside Tony's flat, the radiator's warmth must have been reassuring, as was his Santa-like beard, his twinkling tree, and his offerings of mulled wine and a mince pie. In the air hung an overpowering smell of incense, but then again, the cinnamon suited this festive theme. The oddly obsessive girl-based art on the walls, the discarded pair of women's grey tracksuit bottoms blocking the base of the locked spare room, and even the putrid whiff of Liz's slowly decomposing body after five days in a warm flat couldn't have unsettled Bridget. As there were no screams, no signs of a struggle, and at 8.45pm, a neighbour said they heard the rhythmic sounds of sex. And then, nothing. That night, like a sick and twisted Christmas treat to himself, Tony fulfilled his sadistic fantasy. As perhaps with his hefty bulk crushing her tiny chest, at the point of climax, he strangled Bridget to death. Her name meant nothing to him. Unlike her number, as being his third victim, Tony had achieved his grisly goal by graduating from the forgettable level of a murderer to the infamous and exclusive ranks of a serial killer. Only with infamy never guaranteed, he knew that his dark ambition was incomplete. On Christmas Day, Within the sweaty recesses of his spare room, Tony played in his own little toy box, as on his bed lay two life-size dolls, both naked and spread-eagled. One was a pale-skinned redhead, with fuller hips, natural boobs, a ligature mark on her neck, and a black NY baseball cap to disguise her reddening and irrelevant face. The other was once an olive-skinned beauty with dark short hair, a stunning smile, and an expensive boob job. Only now her mottled legs were topped off with a set of Mr. Men's socks, and her purple bloated head was hidden behind the red rubber of a devil's mask. Bridget and Liz were his to do with as he pleased, to dress, to undress, to kiss, and to violate. And as Boxing Day passed, he posed both ladies with their heads cocked coyly towards him, snapping his camera to capture a sick souvenir to be tugged over later. As the two luscious but anonymous lesbians now looked as if they lured their sexual saviour to bed. But his infamy was yet to be cemented. Wearing a pair of yellow marigolds, Tony dragged their bodies into the small white sparseness of his bathroom. With the cold tap running, he used only what he could find lying around, 
three kitchen knives, and an old rusty hacksaw as he severed their limbs at the weakest point, the joints. Each cut was clean and unrushed, with no rips, tears, or slashes. And as if he was filleting a fish, he took his time, slicing through every ball, socket, and vertebrae. So when those neat orderly pieces of dissected women were stacked together, it was hard to tell which part belonged to who. With two dismembered heads, four feet, four hands, four arms, eight bits of four legs, and two torsos cleanly cut into halves across the ribcage. In neatly wrapped bundles, Tony placed each part in a black bin bag and sealed it tight with duct tape. On Sunday the 29th of December 2002, in broad daylight, Tony disposed of the lumpy black bin bags in the council's green metal dumpsters for public waste. On the corner of Camden Road and Plender Street, just one street from his flat, an upper torso, a right arm, a left arm and a foot was dropped in amongst the rat-infested mess of food waste and empty bottles. In a similar dumpster, he slung a pair of legs at the back of the College Arms pub, just a few doors down from his home and directly opposite the Mornington unit. Anthony Hardy's dark ambition was finally complete as with three sex workers dead and their body parts scattered about the London streets. Just like his hero, he was officially a serial killer. But to achieve the true infamy that he desired so much, the next step was beyond his control. And worse still, to get it, he would need to wait. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. The final part of this four-part series into the Camden Ripper continues next week. But to know more about this case, stay tuned till after the break. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Ruth Scannell, Kristen Parrish, Darren Scott, Tom Davies, Donna Debrino, and Erin Howe. I thank all of you very much and I hope you enjoyed the special photos and videos which go with this series via Patreon. Plus, a special thank you to Selena Dean and Meta Kongstad for your very kind donations via the Murder Mile eShop. My belly is now full of custard tarts. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <sighs> Fucking hell. Oh, felt longer. That felt a lot longer. Oh, hello everyone. Extra mile time. Oh dear God, thank God! Oh, it's a nightmare that one. I'm trying to trying to record that, and the problem is, uh, all across West London, I've mentioned this before, but we have these green green parakeets that I think I think well the myth is that there was a uh, a film production being done either over at Shepperton or somewhere like that. People still don't know what production it was. There's a lot of myths around it, but they were using green parakeets, and because it was outdoors. That obviously the parakeets were like, oh, oh, I might disappear. So they all buggered off. So right across West London, you've got, if you look up into the the trees, you'll see lots of grey birds. We have lots of grey birds here, obviously. Uh, but eventually, every so often, you'll see kind of like lime green things flying around. It's these parakeets. And they're very nice to look at, but they've got a horrible screech. And I'm trying to, I've been trying to record this. And above me is all the parakeets. And they're like, <coughs> And then behind me is Coot is having a bit of a go today. He was fighting with his mate. I could hear him bouncing his mate off my boat, which was really annoying. And then two ladies decided to stop outside my boat and have a good old yak for about 20 minutes. And like, nah, 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 nah. so my piles, my piles are playing me up. It's like, oh, oh, anyway, so that's done. That's that episode done. Hope you enjoyed it. That was uh, something, something different. I'm going to just put on my uh, coffee. Well, I might have tea. Oh, what am I having? Tea or coffee? Tea. Tea, I think. Oh, let's do a tea. It's tea o'clock. I, my mouth has gone all dry from too much coffee. Too much coffee. There we go. Oh, try and open the window. Uh, pop me tea in. There we go. Two sugars. Got to be done. Lovely jubbly. And what else? What am I going to have? I'm going to have that. There we go. I realised I don't have any custard tarts anymore because I ate them all last night because they were nice and cold. So I thought, better to eat them when they're cold. So what have I got? I've got McVitie's Clubs, which I think I mentioned before used to be Jacob's Clubs, but obviously they've been bought out. Uh, Very nice. Milk chocolate covered crunchy biscuit with an orange flavoured cream. Yum. Orange ones are good. Minty ones are good as well. Might have to treat myself, but they're very nice. Right, what else is happening at the moment? Uh, obviously, we got uh, Christmas coming up. That's good. Christmas not too far away. That's good. Looking forward to that. I've, I think, uh, I think, I, I think I've got nine more days of this to go. I'm pretty exhausted. Now. I've been working since doing Murder Mile since I think I started on the eighth of January, and I haven't stopped. I think I've had one day off. 
So I'll be finished, I reckon, on the 20th of December. I can't wait. My brain is just fracked. Got nothing left at the moment. So um, looking forward to just having those couple of days of just doing nothing, which would be good. I don't think the archives aren't fully open yet. Or they're, they're open, but they're only open for a short period of time, like four hours, which is not much. And also, I think uh, London is about to go into lockdown, into proper lockdown, like tier three tier three so not that means anything tier two tier one tier three is all bollocks but i think we're going to get heavier restrictions next week so we shall see anyway what else is happening uh it's winter it's cold so i've got the fire on which is good because uh i've had a stack of uh old paperwork or medical files and stuff like that from uh, mum and gran which now i don't need anymore and they've been sitting there and i haven't got a shredder and i couldn't get couldn't you can't bin them so i was like oh so i've had like a big mountainous amount of paperwork and now I'm like every night I get to burn the files I get to go right I don't need you anymore you're gone which has been very good very rewarding so now I'm down to just a couple of papers now which is good just all the just all the the important stuff now so that's good what else is done I made a chili con carne it is winter so I've made a nice vegan chili con carne because the vegan mince is very good uh, it's very hot and it's very spicy and it came out this morning out the other end and I was like oh it's definitely chili time isn't it that was really good I enjoyed that but it's perfect cold weather food I don't put any rice with it last night I just had it with crackers like Colombo used to do Colombo's favorite meal chili and crackers and it was very it's very nice uh so i'm gonna have that i might have a bit of rice with it tonight or i've got some sprouts to go with it as well sprout oh, that's all good um i've just got to do a, a reminder about crime con for next year i know i i'm sorry everyone i know many of you are getting really sick of the sound of crime con now uh because um Many of us podcasters are, 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 are advertising it. It's contractual. We have to do it. I'm just going to get my water. But uh, let's pop that in there. Let my tea stew for a bit. Uh, but it's, it's going to be an exciting event. We are contractually obliged to kind of advertise it once a month. And I know I'm sorry to everyone because I'm sure if you listen to a lot of true crime, you're getting this from all angles at the moment. So... Uh, just going to whiz through this very quickly. Don't forget, it's it's Saturday the 12th and 13th of June next year. It's a, uh, the world's number one true crime event. So it's going to be like 50 hours worth of content there. Loads of po- different podcasters going to there, go there. Um, me and two other well-known podcasters are going to be doing a presentation there, which is going to be very exciting. Uh, we've already planned out what we're going to do. It's it's going to be... I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, there's going to be uh, authors there, journalists, filmmakers real life survivors of true crime criminologists and loads of podcasters as well we're all going to be there obviously all the good ones are going to be there all the best um so if you want to come along they've extended the early bird tickets i think originally it was going to stop around december time they've extended it to right to the start of january so you get 10 percent off if you use the the crime code uh crime code discount code mile m-i-l-e just go there uh, all tickets are protected by the covid protection promise which is great. So if it all goes tits up because the virus hasn't buggered off, therefore it's not a problem. You'll get your full money back. Not a problem at all. So uh, yes, uh, the, as always, there's a link in the show notes. So uh, have a look at that. Right, that was that. Sorry about that. Um, hope to meet all of you there at some point. And uh, when Murder Mile walks are, are starting again, I hope to see all of you there as well, which will be good. Hopefully that'll be end of uh, February. I'm holding off till the end of February because I suspect that we're going to have a, a, set, a third lockdown, or or as the British government do, they don't call it lockdown; they call it they call it 
extra restrictions. Rice bollocks. Uh, anyway, so there'll be extra restrictions in January. So I'm, I'm guessing that I don't want to set up the tours and then have to shut them down again. Because every time I set them up, obviously when people buy tickets, it costs me to... Um, the, the money it costs me money to you know, have, uh, per, uh, uh, process the tickets and when people re- refund the tickets it costs me money as well so like a 15 pound ticket will top, cost me three pounds and that's three pounds for someone not to turn up so every time i set up a tour and then shut it all down it costs me money every time so do you know that's i get charged 30 like 30 quid for one tour that I'm not running, it's it, it's a lot, it tots up, so that's why I'm being cautious, I'm not going to set up my tours until like end of February, start of March. Uh, right, let's do some questions, let's whiz through this, so uh, question number one, what was Tony's nickname at Arlington Hostel? What was Tony Tony's nickname at the Arlington Hostel? It was actually the Arlington House Hostel, correcting myself there. Question two, what tools did Tony use to cut up the bodies? It's really annoying now. The birds have shut up. And the guy... Oh, that was a burp, sorry. And the guy with the leaf blower who was outside as well, he's got disappeared as well. Now I'm on this bit. They've all decided to disappear. And the ladies who were yakking have disappeared as well. Typical. Uh, question three. Bridget was born in what country? Question four. Bridget was child number what of how many? I.e. how many brothers and sisters did she have and what order was she? Question five. Where did Tony buy his bin bags? I've been there many times before. Question six. What job did Bridget's husband do? Question seven. How did Tony sever his ties with the alcohol advisory service? Question eight. What was round Tony's neck when the rector prayed for his immortal soul? Question nine. What was below the artwork of Sarah in red writing in his bathroom? And question 10, this isn't in the episode, but I thought it might be interesting because uh, it popped up in my research. I almost added it to the episode, but I didn't. Uh, what was what what were the main what were the big movies that were on British television, i.e. BBC and ITV on Christmas Day when Tony was po- posing both of those bodies? We'll come back to that later on. Classic, classic Christmas movies. Right. What else we got? Uh, Let's dive into some extra things in here to see how long I've done so far. Okay. Uh, so a part of Tony's precautionary measures, uh, as mentioned, he'd got a, a, his key worker would come around to check that he was okay, uh, that he was okay, that he was doing well. And they came to a kind of an agreement that instead of going around to his flat to see him, that they would meet in his cafe uh, to check that Tony was doing well. Obviously, this was kind of beneficial for her because uh, she was female, and he, as mentioned, he got a history of like um, just sexual assaults and stuff like that, and he was an alcoholic. Uh, but it was also beneficial for him because it's like the last thing he kind of wanted was someone, uh, you know, his care coordinator, coming around and looking at his flat and you know seeing things that maybe they shouldn't. So, uh, 
So they had regular meetings. It was done in a cafe just around the corner. It's, uh, it w- wasn't really sp- specified which cafe it was. There is actually a cafe just around the back of Tony's house. So I'm guessing it was that one. It was on Crowndale Road. Uh, but whether it was that one, I don't know. Uh, but even even on the care coordinator's notes uh, would state, met with Tony in the cafe yesterday at 3.30. Tony states that he feels very well. On his scale of 0 to 20, he says he's, he is about a 12, uh, but is sleeping 8 to 9 hours a night and does not feel manic. Uh, the rate and tone of his speech is normal. Tony requested that I check his lithium levels, which are within the normal limit, limits. Uh, relayed back the information to Tony this morning. Uh, so uh, as seen, you know, he, know, he knows how to play people. He know, and he plays them well. He really does. Um, it's kind. Of, it's kind of weird. This is what makes. This is why I decided to do the four phases of the Camden Ripper because there is. No, there's no definitive Anthony Hardy. I feel there's kind of like as you've got. You've got episode one. You've got the victim side of him, uh, which he plays up a lot. And then you've you've kind of got. You know, you've got him as an alcoholic, as a homeless man. You've got him with his uh, mental health issues, which kind of swing about in different directions. It's hard to pin down exactly who he is. You've got his sadistic side. Do you know, is he playing people or is it just luck? Do they is is it because they see him as a victim, therefore he's able to play the victim side? Is he a, is he a very very clever manipulator or is he just lucky? I mean, you've got you've got to look at the 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 stuff, especially after Sally Rose White's death. That was just luck. The police police pretty much had him for murder. Pretty much, they were they were pretty much happy with that case. They knew that everything they had was murder, but. As we'll get into in part four, you got the pathologist who said, no, it was a natural death. And as the police said, you know, if the pathologist says it's a natural death, there's nothing they can do. The, the investigation collapses because the pathologist has said it's not suspicious. It's an accident. That's fine. So the police, the police did a, a second autopsy on that. Oh, they requested a second autopsy, which was reconducted um, by Dr. Freddie Patel, who'd done the first autopsy, which I think is kind of weird you would think they would they would go do you think that the system would say right we need a different you know if you get a second opinion you need to have a second opinion from a different person do you know like if you if you go to your doctors and you say and the doctor says something you go i want a second opinion you get a different doctor do you know maybe in the same practice but you still get a different doctor but a pathologist in something as big as this anyway so the pathologist said no it's definitely a heart heart uh she had a heart attack so uh so do you know tony was really lucky in a lot of different ways uh but yeah no he was um he was able to uh go into the community live a normal life uh he went to the upstairs studio at the diorama which was a voluntary uh arts group uh, he joined an art class. Everyone said he was very nice. You know, they, they, no one had any real causes for concern when they were there. They mentioned once that he was talking about cannibalism, but that was only in relation to uh, the film Silence of Lambs, which, you know, I probably mentioned Silence of Lambs at least once a month. I, at least once a, once a month, I go, it puts the lotion on its skin and it gets the hose again. <laughs> so, I mean, does that make me a serial killer? No, it just makes you know people who enjoy um interesting films uh we uh, i try not to give away too much here so as mentioned in here in uh, the arlington house hostel 
Uh, Tony was there for a while. He was uh, evicted on many occasions for not only for beating up residents and hitting hotel staff, but as mentioned in the previous episode, for making sexually inappropriate comments uh, and even suggesting that uh, they all make pornographic videos. Uh, they they tried many times to get court proceedings to get him to leave. It kind of it was you know very difficult for them, but they they managed to do it. Uh, two of the workers who were there, they were the ones who 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 set who mentioned about his infamous nickname, which is in one of the questions, which I can't mention to now, but this was the fact that he would... Uh, I'll explain more when we do the questions, because I don't want to give away too much. You probably all remember anyway. It was quite a, a memorable nickname. Um, uh, as with uh, Tony as well, it's it's still uncertain at this moment uh, whether he would go into uh, King's Cross to pick up the prostitutes or whether he would call them because many had uh uh like cards in phone boxes or do you know uh he would pick up a lot of uh russian and eastern european prostitutes from loot there's lots of contact ads in there uh so he would go to a phone box because he didn't have a mobile don't forget this is 2002 i only had my first one in 99 so um uh yeah and uh so there's no real way to track him down through that as well so that's how so we're still not too sure whether he would lead the ladies to his house or whether they would just turn up that was something that he would do he used loot quite a lot to pick up his uh his sex workers uh we've learned a little bit more about Maureen Reeves his friend as mentioned they uh it's, it's kind of weird that um he had a real horrible uh perception perspective on women and what they were about to him they were just about sex and you know disposable and you know he's quite a violent man towards women and yet with Maureen even though they didn't have it was very much very much platonic it's there was nothing romantic between them no love between them it was kind of just friends they met each other uh, liked each other they were chat and talk and it's you know it's kind of interesting a friendship that went on for at least 10 years and uh, so it's only really there that we can see kind of his uh, his kind of Jack the Ripper obsession coming out because he was so comfortable with Maureen. There was there was no, I think that's the interesting thing about that relationship is with doctors, with social workers, with psychiatrists, with the police. He's, there's a game for him. He's 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 thinking about the game. He's thinking about his goal. He's thinking about what he needs to say and what he doesn't need to say. But with Maureen, he's, she's just a friend, so she can kind they can kind of chat and you know it's it's. It's not really a problem. Uh, obviously, she knew nothing about his past, uh, which we'll go into in part four. Um, she knew nothing about his present. Uh, he's just just a nice guy, she said, very down to earth. Obviously, she was hugely shocked when, uh, obviously, all the details finally came out. Um, but to him, he uh, she did say that... Um, he would often brag about the fact that he, he felt that he was more intelligent than doctors and psychiatrists and things like that. Do you know, he'd he'd, uh, he'd got out of the psychiatric unit when many people are kind of there for months and years. And uh, he, he felt that he was a, a much stronger, much smarter man. Um, big part about this story, obviously, is about him risking losing his home. Uh, a lot of people kind of ignore this, but I felt this was kind of important because if you think about it, when he's in the hospital hostels he can't really do that much do you know if he has these goals and ambitions right right early on in life there's not really a lot he can do if you're in a hostel you almost certainly don't have your own room it's kind of bunk beds you know it's uh it's shared with about, about 20 30 people I, I was in a hostel years ago uh I, I, it was shared with about 50 people 
they're not nice uh so uh yeah it's da, 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 da. um so uh, that's really why it, he did have supported living space as at king's terrace but even with that that's kind of you know there's still a hospital a hostile manager there keeping an eye on him you know the cctv the stuff like that so even though he would bring back sex workers which was against the rules uh it's still difficult for him to do that so when he actually got his home at four heartland that was kind of brilliant for him and when as this is why this is the big description at the start of this episode explaining why it's the perfect house for a serial killer when i was looking around the outside of it i thought everything about this is perfect really there's a lot of details here that are kind of unwittingly perfect for a, a prospective serial killer as he was because he'd only killed two by the time we start this episode this is all about him becoming the third one sorry i've just cut my arm so uh i'm i'm licking off the blood lovely dogs do it so it must be good for humans uh uh yeah so um um when all this was going out and it, it, obviously when he was in uh the cardigan ward and he was given his eviction notice the doctors were kind of helping him fight this as were his lawyers because he you know he's he's got court appointed lawyers for this um and obviously the, the the people at heartland were like we don't want him to come back he's a weirdo uh, he's suspected of this murder uh sally rose white we suspect there's probably more we don't want him back in our community which makes sense you would you would understand that totally uh so they they wanted to evict him and wanted to find him somewhere else to live they were uh looking at other hostels and tony would always say like uh there was a, a hostel called st martin's what's it called st martin of tours and he was like no i don't like that place we can't i can't live there it's too strict uh, and I want someone with a more liberal regime. And he, he was kept going and going. And it, this was dragging on for so long, which is why, even though his original eviction was going to be, I think it was 12th of August, by the December, still no no move on that. It kept being delayed, kept being put back. So um, what else was there? I think that was it. Yeah, I think that was it. I don't want to go into too much because obviously next week we've got part four. And part four has got some... Part four, we're going to... We're gonna, finish the story but we're also going to go back to where it all began Ooh, exciting i haven't even got my tea yet Look at my tea my tea's still sitting there like a like a little tea thing waiting to be drunk bits of that and i didn't put in enough water although it is nicely stewed now there we go a nice dark tea yeah get in get in have it uh Oh, this will this will come too late, anyway. But as I record this now, at uh, on December the eleventh, uh, this is the birthday of the real police constable Arsenal Guinness of the Metropolitan Blood. Uh, so happy birthday, Mister Guinness! I hope you are having a lovely day, and that it involves lots of Guinness and Arsenal, maybe scoring a goal for once. I know miracles do happen. Right, okie dokie. Uh let's answer the questions. Question number one. What was Tony's nickname at the Arlington House Hostel? It was the Bone Crusher. Ooh. And that and that when you think about it, that was a decade before uh before the murders even happened. So there's a lot of sadistic tendencies in him anyway. Not just with the crush asphyxiation of sex workers but also other people as well so uh yeah 
He's an odd man. Uh, question number two. What tools did Tony use to cut up the bodies? They were a hacksaw and three knives. Uh, when you, they, they weren't freshly bought uh, rec- uh, before the murders. Uh, when you look at them, they're, they're clearly just standard kitchen equipment that he got in his kitchen. One was, I think one was a looked like a bread knife. One looked like a small meat knife. One looked like a vegetable knife. The hacksaw was just the kind of thing that you'd have uh, around. It looks a little bit rusty as well. Um, question three. Bridget was born in which country? And the answer was New Zealand. She was born in New Zealand? That was my impression there. There we go. Uh, Question four. Uh, Bridget was child number what of how many? And the answer is she was the youngest of five. Uh, Question number five. Where did Tony buy his bin bags? He bought it at the Sainsbury's on Camden Road. Uh, They know this because he used his Nectar card uh, when he was purchasing them. And uh, he he did his... He paid in cash, but he used his Nectar card to get his points. So therefore, when when he was finally arrested, they, they... as the police do, do you know, they check all the little details and they got his nectar card and there it was, time and place. And then he was also caught on CCTV as well. Uh, question six. What job did Bridget's husband do? He was a painter and decorator. Sorry, boat going past. Question seven. How did Tony sever his ties with the alcohol advisory service? He sent them a Christmas card in which he said, I don't need you anymore. Question eight. What was round Tony's neck when the rector prayed for him? It was a key to a locked room in his flat. I wonder which room that was. Question number nine. Uh, What was below the artwork of the words Sarah in red writing in his bathroom? There were two black and white photos of ladies sunning it up in the local park. Lovely. Uh, Obviously, uh, because he was a fan of photography, he would go around with his camera and take pictures. And uh, obviously those would be pictures of uh, ladies who he didn't know. Uh, very nice. Uh, question number 10. Uh, this is a question that's not in the episode, but it's, you, can, you can take a punt at it if you like. So what films were on British television, i.e. BBC and ITV, on that Christmas day when Tony was posing both of those bodies? Uh, they were uh, A Bug's Life, The Mummy, Muppet's Christmas Carol and Free Willy. You see... The TV channels know how to keep us entertained. It's always the same every Christmas, isn't it? You think, oh, I hope there's going to be a great Christmas movie. And then you look and you go, oh, OK, well, it's... Thank thank God we've all got uh, streaming services. and or, or in my case, DVDs. I'll pop on some DVDs because I don't have streaming services. I don't know what I'll watch. I'll watch something nice. Something funny. One Christmas I decided to watch all zombie films. That was good. Uh, anyway that's that done hope you enjoyed that uh next week obviously we have the final part of the four faces of the camden ripper which is all very exciting looking forward to wrapping that up but also uh looking forward to 
not having Anthony Hardy in my head anymore because uh, it's not nice having him in there. He's a bit of a weird man. It's not a nice place to be. It's, it's not a nice place to be thinking about him doing his things and then trying to work out what his motivation is and what he's about. And, oh, it'd be nice when he's gone. He's not a nice person. Uh, anyway, so that's done. I'm going to start editing this and uh, do my things. And then, then then I'll be done in nine days. That's brilliant. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to have some fun. Oh, I could, I could get drunk all day. I've already got my Christmas booze lined up. There's some nice, expensive um, beers and stouts that I've been purchasing. I've, I've been storing them away. There's one There's one called Layer Cake, which has got a kind of... A, it's a stout with a chocolate with a marshmallow on top. Not on top, but it's got a flavour very nice. And then I picked up one yesterday, which is a, a, a Tia Maria flavoured stout. They're all quite dark, so I'm going to have some of those, some nice light beers as well. I'm going to enjoy myself. Ooh, and I've already started picking up treats for Christmas Day as well. Because uh, that's what Christmas should be about. Uh, um, is just enjoying yourself, having fun, watching some movies. I, I know, I know, some people go, "Oh, I hate being by myself for Christmas," but I quite often spend Christmas by myself, and I quite enjoy it. You know why? Because you, you're not tied into anything. You don't have to be forced to. Like some people, you know, they have to go here. They they wake up and they have to do this, and then they have to at eleven o'clock they have to go somewhere, and then at two they have to be somewhere else, and then they have to put the turkey, and it's all, and you you go around the house and it's just a bun fight, and their head is just messed up, and it's like they're not enjoying themselves, they're sweating, and then by by twelve they're already having their first argument, at three they have the second argument, whereas me because I'm I buy my, most Christmases I'm by myself really, I quite enjoy it because I wake up and I go right bacon sandwich, fondant fancies, crack open a beer. Pop on a movie, do my calls. Do my, gotta do the calls and go, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. Okay, let, yeah, let me speak to the next one. Ba 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 ba. And then I'm just veg the day and I can have a nice walk. And you know, it's peace, it's quiet, there's no stress about it. And then I treat myself to something nice for dinner. And you know, you can, yeah, there's no rules you can pick out. You can, you can have, you can start the day with a nice sticky toffee pudding if you want to because it's your Christmas day. You can do, there's no rules, you can do whatever you like. That's what I like about Christmas is just just not stressing about shit it's i never get that people who have christmas and they they just look like they're not having a good time just enjoy yourself and if anyone is not having a good if anyone is just trying to bring you down because you're because they insist that you stick to a tradition stick up your middle finger and tell them to fuck off (laughs) it's just just enjoy yourself so uh, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm gearing up for Christmas. Uh, Amy uh, and uh, Cole is coming around in the morning. My mate Cole's coming around for bacon sandwich on his journey to his his folks' house. And then when Amy comes over, uh, Amy, the plan, uh, uh, pajamas all day, watch movies, drink, games. No real, no real stress. That's what we're gonna do. A nice, easy day. Yay! Right, good. That's me done. Uh, I'm gonna start editing this episode and then have myself some fun. Have yourselves a good week. Be good. Stay safe. Uh, don't get murdered by serial killers. Okay. Lots of love. Bye bye. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.